we go. Got it unmuted. Happy Easter, everyone. So good to be celebrating with you on the most important Sunday of the year for us as Christians. Uh, so thank you for coming. Uh, for all those that are watching online, so good to have you with us as well. And uh, so good that you guys are here with us. And we're going to be talking about the resurrection because it's Resurrection Sunday and that's what this is all about. This is one of the most important days in the calendar for us Christians because it's on this day that we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. And it means that everything we talk about in Christianity actually depends upon this fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, there's nothing that I could actually say to you that has not been already said about the resurrection of Jesus in the last 2,000 years. But what I want to do today is I want to just meditate a little bit upon the, uh, the story of the resurrection of Jesus in the scripture and try to get ourselves into that story just a little bit more so we can understand what it might have meant for those people that were living at the first story at that time. And then we're going to try to figure out what that means for us today. So let's go back all the way to that first Resurrection Sunday. We're going to go to Luke chapter 24, and I want us to think about what was going on. The disciples of Jesus at that time, they had great hope that Jesus was going to be the one that was going to redeem Israel, that was going to set them free, that was going to be the the thing that they'd hoped for, and then he was crucified. Now the thing about crucifixion is it wasn't unusual at all. There was nothing incredibly special about the crucifixion of Jesus. If you looked at it historically, there had been thousands and thousands of those Roman crosses all throughout the land of Palestine in those days. Jesus was just one more of those rebel Jewish people that had been crucified by the Romans. And so they thought that all hope was lost because the person that they had put their trust in was now dead. And the Romans were victorious yet again. And now we're in danger because we associated ourselves with him. Yeah? And so on that Sunday, they had lost all hope. They were completely confused. They had thrown in their entire lot with Jesus. And it felt as if they had actually lost completely. And they didn't know what to do at that time. Yeah? Two of them were on the road. They were walking from Jerusalem to another place. And they were talking about the things that happened. They'd heard a story. Some of the women from their group had said, we met Jesus. He was resurrected. But they didn't. They didn't believe them because people don't get raised from the dead. That's not what happens. And so they're walking and talking and suddenly a man comes and they don't realize it's Jesus. I don't know how he pulled that trick off, but it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And he says, why are you so sad? What's going on? They said, are you the only person that doesn't know what's been happening? He says, what's been happening? He says, well, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a great prophet. He did these miracles. He talked like no one ever had talked before. We thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And yet, on Friday, they got him and they crucified him. And now some of our women say that he's been risen from the dead. But we know that doesn't happen and we're confused. And he started to talk with them. And he started to open to them the scriptures. And open their mind to what their scriptures said about him. And then he disappeared. A little bit later, some of the disciples were gathered in a a room. And uh, Jesus suddenly appeared among them. And they were shocked. They couldn't believe that it was him, that he was risen from the dead. And so he had to eat some food and says, look, it's me. You, You recognize me, right? It's me. But they couldn't get over the fact that he was supposed to be dead, but he was alive. Because people don't normally come back alive when they're dead, right? That's not a normal thing that happens. 
And he said to them, let's go to Luke 24, verse 44 to 47. He said this, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And as we go into this message, let's just pray that the the Lord would open up to us the scriptures as well, that we would understand this old story in a new way today, that something about this story that we've heard again and again would become alive to us today as we talk about the great resurrection of Jesus. Why don't you just pray with me? Jesus, we pray that today you would open up to us the scriptures, that you would help us to understand more about your story, that you would come today and that you would illumine our understanding to know who you are and the significance of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Julia. Beautiful. Well, who were these disciples and what were they expecting and why were they so shocked by Jesus coming back from the dead? I suppose that last one you can kind of figure out yourself, right? But these disciples, they were, they were good Jewish boys and they knew their scriptures. I mean, the Jewish people put such emphasis on knowing the scriptures what we call our Old Testament, what they called their Hebrew scriptures, they would have huge chunks of it memorized. The way that they would talk about the scriptures, uh, it was just amazing what they knew and what they understand. And yet when Jesus opened up their understanding, they saw things about the story that they had never seen before. And they didn't understand who Jesus was until he opened up the scriptures. So I want to just talk a little bit about what were they expecting. What did they think was going to happen? Who did they think Jesus was? They had a story that they thought he was fitting into, and yet he didn't fit into it in the way that that he actually was meant to fit into it, right? So let's go all the way back to the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures. The, The story starts with God creating everything. And at the very last thing that he creates is he takes some some dirt, some dust, and he forms it into a human, and he calls the human dusty. Hmm? Huh? Good, good plan words. That's exactly what the Hebrew does because the, the word for, for dust or dirt in Hebrew is Adamah. And what he calls him is Adam. He calls him the dirt man. Dusty. That's what he calls him. It's great, isn't it? And so what we got is we got Dusty, the dirt man, the first man, and God, surprise, surprise, puts him in charge of everything. Says, you humans are the ones that are going to be in charge of this whole creation. It was the most surprising thing ever. Why not giraffes? They're so much more elegant than dust people, right? I love giraffes. And we, if you know the story, a couple chapters later, the, the humans are in this beautiful celestial mountain garden temple called Eden, paradise. And they have this great test put before them where the spiritual being in the form of a snake comes and tests them and says, do you really want to follow this God? Or wouldn't you rather do things your own way? You're pretty, you're pretty impressive. And of course, they follow their own way. But something amazing happens in the, in the wrapping up of that story in Genesis chapter 3 because there's this little promise that's inserted into that story that becomes very important for what happens later on. It's Genesis 3.15. Let's look at that. God says to, to, to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman... 
And between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that little word offspring, it means descendants. It means word of seed, but it means descendants or offspring. It's going to become very important. What God says is, look, you might have won this round, but from among these dust people, among these humans, one is going to rise that will crush your head. And this serpent, we found out later in the story, is Satan, the most evil spiritual being there is. But in the midst of crushing your head, you're going to wound him. And so there's this promise of a wounded snake crusher that's coming. But who's this, who's this snake crusher going to be? Which one of the humans is it going to be? Well, the story keeps going and all the nations are all over the world and they're worshipping other gods. And the question then in the first part of the story is, what's God going to do? And so God chooses a person called Abram. And Abram, his name means father of people. But the ironic thing about him is he's got no children and he's old, like really old. And he's got no children. And his name, Abram, means father of people. That's got to hurt, right? <laughs> Especially in a culture like that one where having kids is all that mattered. If you've got no children, you got nothing. He was rich. He had servants. He had lots of cattle, which was important, but he got no kids. And so every time somebody called his name, hey, Abram, father of a multitude, oh, it would hurt. And God calls that guy and says, leave your family, leave your father's house, leave your country, and I'm going to make you a great nation, right? And then in Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abram this, he says, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring, there's that word again, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so God chooses one man, the most unlikely one. Do you see a pattern? This is what God does. He chooses the last created dust man, dusty Adam. and says, you're in charge. He chooses the father of a people with no children and says, I'm going to make you a nation. This is what God does. He chooses the unlikely and does great things. It's kind of a thing he's into. Yeah? And he says, you're going to have so many offspring that no one can count them. And this is the beginning of the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation. And in this story, we know now that that snake crusher is going to come from within this nation. Now the story goes on. All sorts of things happen. And eventually, they're settled in a land and they have a king and his name is David. And he's kind of the high point of the nation. He's a pretty good guy. They're established. He's defeated these enemies. And as you're reading the story, you think, is this the guy? Is this the one that's going to bring blessing to the earth? Is this the one? And it turns out he's not the one because <laughs> he's, he's not that great. And yet God says to him one day in 2 Samuel, he says this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're just going to read the whole Bible today, by the way. That's all we're going to do. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's that idea again. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he goes on and says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so now we know, okay, this, this one that we're waiting for, not only is he an Israelite, he's going to be a son of David. He's going to come from that family. And so the Israelites began to expect a king. 
They began to expect someone that would come and crush their enemies, but also bring blessing to all of the nations. And he's going to be powerful and strong. And he's going to be one from the family of David. And yet as the story goes on, that family is terrible. And rather than being loyal to God, they are loyal to every other God. And they continue on that path for a thousand years until they are crushed by the great empires of the ancient Near East and they become a non-nation. Their story is tragic as they're taken captive by the Babylonians and eventually they get back into their own land, but they've been a crushed people. They don't even rule themselves. They're paying taxes to other nations. And it looks as though this whole project has completely failed. I mean, you look at one of one of their prophets said, the prophet Isaiah says this as he mourns over the situation of their nation. He says, we were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth and the people of the world have not come to life. He looks at their story and says, we were supposed to be the people of God and yet we have failed just like Adam did in the garden right the way through. We have not brought deliverance on earth and yet we know that there's a promise that one is coming who will restore us to our destiny, right? And so by the time you get to the New Testament, this story has been going on for over a thousand years. There's expectations that one is coming who will crush the snake. One is coming who will bring blessing to the nations. One is coming who will rule the world like God originally wanted humans to do. But no one, no one is coming. There's so many false hopes through the story of Israel. Again and again, in and out of the scriptures, false hope. False hope, false hope. So you get to the very first page of our New Testament and you find this scripture in Matthew 1, verse 1. It says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the first 17 verses start with just a list of names that you can't pronounce. And if you're ever reading the New Testament, you probably skip over those first 17 verses because you can't say most of the names. I mean, David and Abraham got it, the rest not so much. And yet, this verse that we would often skip over thunders out of the Old Testament story and says, this, this is the one you were waiting for. Because it chases his genealogy all the way back to the father of a multitude. It traces his genealogy all the way back to David and says, this is the son of David. He's the coming king. And so when the disciples start following him, they have an inkling that he might be the one that we were waiting for. He's the son of David. He's the king. He's the one that can do these miracles. They watch him feed multitudes of people with just very little food. I mean, they saw him walk on water. They saw him heal the sick and even raise dead people to life. They says, this guy has got to be the one that we're waiting for. We are throwing our lot in with him. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to conquer the nations. He's going to rule the world. And we got in early. So this is fantastic. We're going to rule with him. And as you read the gospel stories, time and again, Jesus is trying to change their expect expectations, but they just don't get it. He tells them, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised to life. And again and again, as they're rewriting the story, telling us, they said, and we had no idea what he was talking about. We didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. They were looking for a king. 
But the king came in a very surprising way. Because as you read the Gospels, the whole story is presented as the lead up to Jesus taking his place as the king. And yet his coronation ceremony is a crucifixion. I mean, that's exactly how the story is set up. Look at Luke chapter 23, verse 38. Above his head, there was an inscription that says, This is the king of the Jews. It was written in three different languages. It was an ironic sort of statement put there by the Roman governor to insult him. But it was the truth. This, this is your king. But this is not what kings are supposed to do. This is not how it's supposed to work. He's supposed to rule the nations, not be conquered by the nations. Yeah? They lost hope, the disciples, because this is not how this is supposed to go down. How can our king be crucified? Jesus, what are you doing? We've seen you raise the dead. You can take them down. Why are you submitting to this? And so when he was raised to life a few days later, suddenly everything changed for these disciples. Do you see this? Because not only did it mean they had their friend and their leader back, but it meant that everything that they thought about him was actually true, but in a totally different way than what they expected. It meant that their hope was not lost, that this is the son of David, that this is the king we've been waiting for, this is the wounded snake crusher from Genesis chapter 3 that we've been expecting, and we never saw it coming even though God consistently does things in a way that you would never expect, yeah? This is what He does. He's the one in whom the nations will be blessed. It was a renewed hope. And so I wanted to take us through just a couple of things that the Hebrew Scriptures say about Jesus. There are dozens and dozens of Scriptures we could look at. There are so many stories that foreshadow what was coming in Jesus, but it's just a little, little, tiny little taste of what the Old Testament talks about. And so I want to try to just get that story a little bit fresher for us. Because for the disciples, it meant everything changed for them. Right? And they were sort of fearful before, but they became courageous. And these men and women that saw the resurrected Jesus were willing to die for what they believed in. And just a few years later, we find them being martyred all over the world, all over the Roman Empire and the former Persian Empire, giving witness. We saw him come back to life, and he's the one the nations have been waiting for. They began to worship him as God. Now, let's just, can I just comment on that for a minute? Because sometimes we have this idea of the ancient world that that's not a big deal, that they would worship anybody as, as, as God. And that might be true for many nations, but not for the Jewish people. I mean, just a few years before this, the historian Josephus records an event where the Romans, in trying to conquer the Jewish people, had, like they did everywhere, tried to set up their altars and get them to worship the emperor because it was the only way they could unify the people. And the Jewish people refused to have this be in their land. And so the, the Romans sent in their armies to say, no, you will submit and you will have an altar to Caesar in your land and you will pay honor to Caesar. And they said, we will not. And they said, we will kill you to a man unless you do. And they laid down on the ground in the temple and said, we will not worship your gods. <laughs> the Jewish people would not worship a man. So what convinced the disciples of Jesus, to worship Him as God. 
It has to have an explanation. Something happened. And it changed everything for them. Now that's 2,000 years ago. So what on earth does it have to do with us? Well, the resurrection means that what Jesus said about himself is true. What did Jesus make of the meaning of his own resurrection? He said it in Luke 24. He said, the, the, the forgiveness of sins, repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in my name to all the nations. It's about the forgiveness of sins. And so the resurrection is meant to give us hope for our past because it means that God has dealt with our sin. It means he's dealt with the sin that we have committed personally. He deals with the shame that we carry and the guilt that we carry. And his resurrection means that his atoning death worked. It means that on the cross that God forgives us and reconciles us to himself. It means on the cross that, the, that God and human trauma meet together and that God takes that trauma upon himself. It means that on the cross that the worst sin that humans could possibly ever commit, which is the crucifixion of God himself, is forgiven. So nothing that you have done is too much, right? It means that whatever we have done already has forgiveness in Jesus, that long before you committed those sins, God had already decided what, what options were available to you. He says, I've forgiven you. On the cross, Jesus says it is finished, and the resurrection is the amen of God to say, yes, it is finished. But it's not just our sins, it's those that sin against us. Because on the cross, there's forgiveness, and there's reconciliation, and there is hope for the nations, that where there is sin against us, that we in the cross have an example and strength to forgive those that have done the unthinkable towards us. What is God's answer to the pain and the sin of the world? It's that God would come down to our level and look guilty for us and die in our place. It gives us hope for the past. This is what Paul's talking about in uh, Romans chapter 2, if we get that scripture up. It says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does justification mean? It means we're, we're good. <laughs> we're good. That God says that when we accept Jesus, we're good. <laughs> it's okay. You're accepted. You're good. Yeah? At the cross, God and sin meet. And the resurrection says that we're good. You know what? The, the resurrection is amazing because it means that we have hope for the future as well. It's not just about our past, but it's actually about our future as well. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, sort of picking up mid-sentence here. He says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And so the hope that we have for our future is that not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but when we put our faith in him, then it sets our future on a totally different course. And so that we have hope as Christians that this life is not it, 
that we will be raised from the dead as well by Jesus, that the new creation, we will get part of that, that all the new things that God is making, we get to be part of that, and that the new life that starts now then goes on forever and ever, and we have the hope of being in His presence. The story ends in the Bible with God making all things new, and He started that with Jesus. And then... He's going to finish that with Jesus as well. And we get to take part of that story. And so we get an incredible hope because the resurrection has happened to know that this life is not it. But the resurrection also gives us hope for today. And I just want to finish these thoughts on that because really what we need is hope for today, don't we? It's great. I mean, we really need hope for our past. And we really do need something to look forward to as well. But we need hope for today. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, the great hope of the resurrection is that Jesus is still alive today. And that the intercession that he made on the cross is still effective today. You see, in the Jewish story, they had a way to sort of be right with God, sort of temporarily. It involved animals sacrificed. It involved a priesthood. It involved ritual. But really, it was only a stopgap, and it wasn't effective because the priest kept dying, and the blood of animals really isn't effective to take away human guilt. And so the Bible presents Jesus as a high priest whose mediation for us is forever effective because he lives forever. So his, his mediation lasts forever because he's sitting at a place of honor before God at the right hand of God interceding for us. Now that doesn't mean he's, he's busy praying for you. That's not what the word intercession means there. It means that in himself, in who he is, he has made a way for us to be right with God because he is God. But he's also human And so he made a way for us to be right with God and made a way for God and humans to come together because he's God and he's human and he lives forever in that state to make the doorway open for us to be right with God. And that gives us hope for today because we don't worship a crucified Savior. We worship a risen Savior that is alive today, that affects us today, that gives us hope for today, and, as, as, and He is as real today as He was to those disciples that met Him on that first Easter Sunday. But what He requires of us is that we put faith in Him, right? He requires that we submit ourselves to His Lordship. Now the thing about following Jesus, like everything else that God does, is it doesn't always seem to be the best way about going about doing things, right? Because God always chooses to do things in a, in a roundabout sort of a way, in a surprising way. He chooses the dirt men to rule the world. He chooses the fatherless man to be a, the one that, that has the multitude and create a nation. He chooses a crucified king to be the ruler of the world. And He chooses us to be His people. And so you might be a follower of Jesus here. Let's tap into hope again for today. Because just because things don't always go the way we want or are not going how we expect them to go doesn't mean that anything's actually really that wrong. It's a normal way that God operates. He gives us hope in the midst of chaos. You know, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's fantastic. Thank you for coming. It's amazing. But Jesus also offers us hope as we surrender to Him and follow His ways. 
And we're going to go into a little bit of time of worship just to respond a little bit to Jesus and to think, nothing that I've said today has not been said before. Thousands and thousands of sermons have been preached about Jesus and his resurrection. But I hope today as we've just had some moments to reflect on what the resurrection means, that we can appreciate something again about the significance of following Jesus, yeah? Why don't we just pray together? God, we thank you so much for what Easter represents. We thank you that the resurrection brought hope to the hopeless disciples so long ago. And it changed the way that they lived their lives. And they were willing to die for what they'd experienced in you. And I thank you that today as we live, that it also gives us hope for our, for our past, for our guilt and our shame, for our future, but also for today. That we can follow you, Jesus, and have hope for today. We honor you and we worship you, Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand as